Well, today I'm going to go over what I do about once every two years. So for those of you in the room that are thinking about making this your church home, uh, if you're going, wow, I'd like to attend a cornerstone class, I've emailed those who were interested. This will suffice for your cornerstone class. And uh, everything that I'm going to be talking about is what I would teach you at a cornerstone class. We did this three other times when um, most people don't remember when we became a church. We just did it on Sunday mornings from time to time to let people become what they consider members. Church membership is really not biblical. I'll tell you what's biblical, membership into the body of Christ. But the way we are as humans, we have different bodies. So when you hear membership, it's not a club. It's just this would be your church home if that's what you wanted it uh, to be. And so uh, I want to go over who we are, what we're about. And for those of you who have been here a a long time, you go, I know this. I want to remind you uh, as I leave uh, that this hasn't changed. And this is really important to me. At 1.30 in the morning, um, I was, uh, um, what, eight, it'd be probably 10 years ago or 11 years ago, I just woke up. I couldn't sleep. And I asked the Lord, I didn't do it immediately. I thought, gosh, I just want to sleep. Um, but then after I lay there for 30 minutes, I said, hey, God, is just something you're trying to tell me. And I heard this voice just within my heart and my mind just say, yeah, get up and go to your office. And so I went to my office and I sat there. And everything I'm about to teach you is what he gave me. In a matter of 45 minutes, he, he just said, here's the vision. I want my grace to be I want my grace to be poured out on people. I want them to understand what it is. I want them to understand what truth is. I don't want a church that is going to manipulate anymore. I don't want people to teach things that are not real but are simply man-made. I want you to be different. I don't want you to do. And I don't want you to be in competition with any church. You grow at the rate I want you to grow. And I said, okay. I sat on it for seven days. Didn't even tell my wife. Sought no counsel but the Holy Spirit. And then I told my wife. I said, baby. This is going to sound really stupid <laughs> because I've been telling God for years, don't do this to me. And God's going, don't you tell me what to do. <laughs> so, because I, I never wanted to be a pastor. I really didn't. Uh, I would have been fine speaking, consulting, and, and even being a student pastor, but he had different things for us. Um, and so that's where we started eight years ago. We started with this vision, and this vision is still intact. Are we doing it perfectly? No. Are you managing your family perfectly? Yeah. <laughs> so if you said, yeah, come on, I'll help you see your flaws. Um, what I'm saying is we do the best we can with the people that we have. And also the newness. It's kind of like a dad. Those commercials about a dad and a mom with their first kid, they clean everything off, you know. And then it falls in the toilet and you go like this and here. Put it in your mouth. You, just, you just know that, you know, the dirt's not going to hurt them. Everything's going to be okay. They'll only cry a little bit. But... In the church here for nine years now, um, um, you know, have we landed down on it? No, but we are still working toward this. Will we ever be perfected? No. Will there be people in the church that think we're not doing enough? Yes. Um, uh, Your teenagers think you're not doing enough sometimes, don't they? Your children think you aren't doing enough. What I'm saying, I'm not calling you children or teenagers, but what I'm saying is, we can't, we can't fix everything and make it to people's liking with all these personality styles. But we do the best that we can. 
And so I want you to know, if you're interested in making this church home, there is a form back there that you'll have to turn this in in the next week. Uh, you can drop it in the offering. You can fill out the offering box. You fill it out. But we need to know the rest. This is going to tell me about your salvation experience and your baptism. And then they have a brief history, and then we have what we believe about baptism, the constitutions back there. People say, we don't need all that stuff. I've heard people say that and go, well, yeah, we have to have a constitution. We have to have bylaws because we live under our government. And those are the things required for us to be, become nonprofits. So many people say so many things that they don't know what they're they're really thinking about it. That's why we do it. It's, it's, it's why we have to have all those things. And it just kind of saves us any problems. It allows us that the minute the laws began to change and, and more and more that said, hey, um, you have to marry uh, you have to marry anybody, we immediately went to, had to go to our bylaws and change that immediately. And then we had to put in there what a man was, what a woman was, and those are the two so that my staff and I would not be required by law. Does that make sense? And so we have to have those things. It's just the world that we live in. It doesn't bother me. It's just, it's just paperwork. It takes care of all these things. And so if you want to pick some of that up as you're going out, I'd love for you to do that. I want to, want to make sure that you know these things. First of all, we are, we are elder-led. And, and what that means is every three years, our elders rotate off. If all of a sudden we have a busy year one time, we ask some elders to stay on, and we had 11 elders because we were making some major decisions. We have young elders. We have old elders. We have elders who uh, we know. All of them are able to stand up here and actually uh, uh, to give a lesson. That's required biblically. But we are elder-led. We don't vote on anything here. So if you're going, well, how does the system work? We don't vote on anything here. But you all know this. And if you don't, I've repeated it over and over. But I'll tell you again. We don't hide anything from you. Our budget is given to uh, 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 the elders by the staff because they're the ones that know how to do the things, all the things, all the stuff, the lighting, and then down to their budgets. And we look at it and we say, is this doable? What do we want to add? Uh, what do we want to take away? What do we need to take care of? And so that's that budget. That budget is always in the outpost. If you walk in, it's always to the left on that back wall. You'll see it. And we know people take them because we know how many we put out. But it's all there. And anything, uh, anything uh, um, 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 that you have questions about, you can ask. Somebody came up and said, uh, man, that personnel, that's a, that's a lot of our budget. And I go, well, yeah, you know, are you going to take care of who's going to make sure the babies are taken care of? Are you gonna? Those are paid positions. And then we have this room or this building clean. We have workers. All of the young families here on Wednesday nights, you want to go to community group, don't you? Well, we, we have paid workers. It's kind of normal for church. So everything comes out of that. And so we can break that down for you. But uh, I appreciate it. But we are elder-led. And it's been going well for nine, ten years. And these elders rotate. We never had a problem with any elders. Um, and we used to pick them from the outside, outset from out in the congregation. But now what we do is we, uh, we actually, uh, if you look at what the requirements of a deacon is and what a requirement of an elder is, it's so close that now that we've had, had deacons, uh, that, that we have deacons, they are vetted through. And we figure if a deacon can come through and has the ability to teach, there are some, they go, they know they'll never be a deacon because I'll look at them and go, man, you sure you don't want to teach? No. So I'm going, gosh, you would be a great elder, but I've got to stay under what God wants me to do, and that is you've got to be able to teach. So uh, 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 we, now we vet them through the deacons because we watch those deacons, and if their service and their consistency and their time here, because we want deacons to serve. It was funny when we started first doing the deacons, we wanted 10, and half, over half of them said no, and I went to talk to several of them said, what? 
what's up? And they go, man, my dad was a deacon. And good night. He'd come home. and I mean, there were about three or four of these guys, and I thought, wow. So they have this distorted view of what a deacon is. Deacons do not lead this church. Deacons do not make decisions. Deacons do what biblically a deacon is supposed to do, and they serve. They're locking up these doors for you. They're closing them up. When you go home, they're helping stacking chairs, and they're, they're picking up trash out of here. And they're just, they're just servants. And once I told them, look, you're not going to have anything to do with the business. That's, that's the elder-led. Then we got our 10 deacons. And so that really happened. And I thought, how sad that, you know, your fathers had to go through that. But we are elder-led. I just want to remind you. The second thing is we're staff-driven. That doesn't mean that the staff do everything, but we are. Why not take a student pastor who, is, who is really loves students and say, drive that student ministry. What do you need? And I was saying earlier, we're really doing well in the student ministry. And the consulting I'm in is if there's these three magic numbers. Ready? They're 10, 14, and 21. Any, anybody that just likes kids can, can have 10% of their total attendance be teenagers. So if I walk into a student ministry, they go, man, we're not growing. I'm going to go, then there's a problem with you if you're stuck in eight or time. You may, may not be called. You don't know how to do student ministry because I'm telling you, any of you could take and do 10%. Then the next number is 14%. And this is true for children's ministry as well. So here we are. We run 230. So you look at uh, 10% is what? 23. Right. If, if, if Jesse was running 15 to 23, I'd say, hey, Jesse, let's talk about your calling. I really would. But we're running anywhere from 45 to 60. So in other words, we've capped. Now, the next good number is 14%. And if you're visiting, you're going, well, I thought we would be a sermon. This is about who we are. So if you're coming to join us, man, I want that 14%. 14% is healthy, you know? So you can see we're beyond the 14%. And only our area, our rural areas like this, can we go to the next one, which is 21%. Now, watch this, everybody. This is so important. At 21%, the problem is not any ministry. The problem is, comes by us and the elders, because we need more space, okay? And we're there. I mean, when you're running, he won't be able to sustain 21%, and the 14 will go down and go back up. The same is true for our children. We're running, what, 35 children. So that tells you your numbers. So we're healthy, right? But we're a young church, too. And uh, we're, we got so many kids. So I want you to know we are very healthy, uh, and we're doing well, but we are staff-driven, I don't micromanage my staff. I micromanage them in a couple of areas. Number one, don't ever write on a piece of paper and put it on a window because that looks terrible. Those days are over. Okay? Number two, our place should be looking good all the time. Take care of your areas. Other than that, if the Lord leads them to do stuff, I want them to have the freedom to do it. And we have a wonderful staff because we all work together. So we're staff-driven and we're deacon-served. Our deacons truly serve. So if anybody ever approached you and said, I want you to be a deacon, man, it's just service. And if you have the abilities and the gifts that are biblical to be an elder, you know, you go, well, how come they won't ask me? I'll read it. Read it. It's on our website, uh, what the elder requirements are, the biblical requirements. Read it. And you go, nah, I wouldn't want to teach. That's the big clincher. So just want you to know we're deacons served. And then um, we are also, uh, the finances are open to the body. I already told you that. And the next thing I want you to know thing, understand is we are not in competition with other churches. Let me tell you something. 
I have sent people to encounter, even though I don't agree with everything that they do. And I know the pastor there. We've talked. We, we was just saying, it's like, okay, yeah, that I may not agree with that, but you're not. It's not a doctrinally bad church. What I mean is, they believe in the gospel. They believe in Christ crucified, and there's other things that we don't do that they that, that they practice openly that I don't think should be practiced within a body of Christ in this room. Okay, and you go, yeah. Do you believe in tongues? Yeah, I believe in tongues. Why would why why take tongues away? Because we don't we can't explain it. But I do know that tongues should never be in a room this large with this many people unless there's an interpreter. And if you ever spoke in tongues, be ready because I'm gonna stop the service and I'm gonna say we're gonna wait for an interpretation. And if you step up and go, I got the interpretation, I'm gonna go, man, you are way out of order because you can't interpret in your own tongues. <laughs> You got an interpreter. So there are some things that we differ, but there are people that fit that mode. But there's also people I know that he has sent here and said, hey, man, you know, I think, I think Carpenter's way would fit you. We're all different. And I'm not in competition with any church. I'm not in competition with any church. I tell our people all the time. They say, well, yes, Encounter is doing this and First is doing that. And I go, good for them. We're not in competition. We will do things when God calls us to do things, and he raises up the people to do that. If you're with me, say, oh, yeah. Good, I just want to make sure. And then, uh, so we're not in competition. I want to read a scripture out of Acts to kind of point us to this grace and truth thing. Paul was standing in Athens, and he was standing before, in the Areopagus, he was standing on what was called also Mars Hill. Athens was a melting pot of everything you can imagine. It was a melting pot of religious, and when you see the word religion, honestly, the word religion in Greek really means, can mean, has more use in it in the word of superstition. Because we go, hey, what religion are you? Kind of I go, well, you know, we've kind of changed it up a little bit what religion is, but really it was a superstition. He's about to ask him, I see that you're very, very superstitious. And uh, is that me? Wow, that's not me. Um, I don't know what that was. But uh, uh, Brian, are you talking on the phone again? All right. So uh, what, what happened is, uh, hey, I may need you to, my phone, my thing just went off. And so Paul's standing before them, and he says this. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, said, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. You're very superstitious. Okay? I just want you to know it's a thought. It says this, and then he goes on to say, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, because remember, he's walking through Athens. He's seeing all, this, all, all these idols that are up there. And he's walking through, and he, he says, I noticed all the, all the little worship things I found. He said, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. He said, I noticed that with all your altars and all the little gods, that there's this unknown God. Well, let me tell you about that unknown God. He took out of theirs. They wanted to make sure they were covered, right? And that's why they added that. Somebody was so fearful that they had left a God out. They said, hey, listen, we need, to, we need to worship a God that we don't know about just to make sure we're covered. Well, we're, who is it? We don't know. But, man, we just want to make sure because we don't need another earthquake. We don't need another catastrophe. We don't need to be. And so they did that. And it says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So I love what, what he did. He took of their world and said, well, why don't we just say Here's what you meant that you didn't know what you meant. Okay? And he began to do that. And then he said this. He said, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men. And what he was saying, that made some of them probably upset because they went, well, wait a minute. 
uh, what about my God over here that I really believe made all this? You'd say, oh, no, no, no. You're, you've been worshiping the wrong one. The unknown God, yeah, he's the one that made all your little gods. But he didn't make them, really. He said, your mind made him. I'm the God. Or he says, God, is, Christ is, is, is through Jehovah, and the Holy Spirit is that God. He says, being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. There are a lot of people that have a relationship with God, and they think, well, God needs me to do this. He doesn't need you to do this. He just wants you to do that because you love him and you love his creation. How about that? Yeah, if you get that arrogance, <laughs> look what I did. Ooh, be careful, okay? Uh, uh, God says, I don't need that. I just want you to humbly give of yourself. And then he says, and he made for, from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling places. That's what he's describing. Hey, all these people that you know through the years, your ancestor, that was all God putting it together and made this one man. It says this, and it says, he made the one man, every nation, every mankind, to live in all the face of the earth. Let's go to the next one, man, if you mind. It says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way. That word feel in the Greek really means to grope, like you can't see. He said what we're hoping is that through this process that people will grope. They'll feel their way. They'll feel their way toward him and find him. He's talking about Jesus, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. He's right here with you. So he's talking and saying, your God's here. He's not far from us. These temples you can go to every day, but they're not going to help you. That's why people say, oh, my gosh, your coffee stains on the floor. Just clean it up, okay? It's just a building. This building should be used. You got it? Well, this, this is the fourth time in 10 years we've changed this carpet. We'll change it again. We use it all. Does that make sense? No, we do ask you to use a lid. But anyway, I'm not bitter. Okay, here we go. It says, for in him we live... We move, and we have being. That's us, carpenters, right? We live, we move, we have being. So when a flood comes, you're going to make it. When cancer comes, he's going to see you through. Whether here or on the other side of eternity. We live, we breathe, we move. I want to live and breathe and move the way God wants us to move. Listen to this. And listen, there's a lot of things I want you to know as a pastor. There's a lot of ways to get a lot of people in this building. And I'm just not going to do them. There are a lot of ways to manipulate. You got me? I just don't want to manipulate. I want to be God-driven. It says this. And it says, uh, in him we live and move, and even some of you are, are poets. Now he starts quoting the poets that are around there. He quoted a poet. And it's in the Bible, for we are indeed his, his offspring. He says, some of you poets said, yeah, we're indeed his offspring. He says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Now, when we moved to this building, the steeple was a little crooked. and it was my, I love my elders. They said, I, I can't remember who it was, but somebody said, you're going to take the steeple down. I go, oh, Yeah. Steeples don't represent God anymore. Driving any city and, and look, follow a steeple as you go to it, and you might just pull up into a Jehovah's Witness church. It's just, you know, I said, yeah, yeah, we're not going to do that. We want this building. So one day if God says, I want you to move back to Port Natchez, um, then uh, this building can be sold as a business or something else. It's, you know, it, we, want, we want it to be used. All right? He says, the, the times of ignorance got overlooked, but now... 
He commands all people everywhere to repent. I want to camp here just for a few minutes. Repent. It's another word that we've messed up biblically. Okay, so when we look at this word repent, I, I still don't have it, so I'll lead you to it. We look at this word repent. It says this. Um, it says repent. This is in your dictionary. To feel or express sincere regret or remorse about one's wrongdoing or sin. To feel regret or repentance toward about something. That is the dictionary. Let's read the next one. Now, this one is repentance. Here's what Charles Spurgeon says. I love Charles Spurgeon. Some of you are going to get upset. But Charles Spurgeon, because of the, where he lived during that time and the time that he lived, he didn't, in my opinion, by this statement, totally understand repentance. He was living in a different kind of repentance the way we are. Some of you are going, wow, you just, God's not going to kill me. Spurgeon's a man. And plus, if he does, I'm heaven bound. All right, here we go. Repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin. That's the part I grapple with. And a mourning that we have committed it. That's not biblical, in, in, my, in my opinion. It can be connected to it, but I'll just hear me out. It says, it is a, a, re, a, a resolution of, to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind. That is totally biblical. That's all that words mean. Everything around it is added. It says this, of the very deep and practical character which makes the man love what once he hated and hate what once he loved. When I became to know Christ, I had no shame and had no guilt. I didn't even know who God was. So I'm telling you, when I repented, I learned something and I did what biblically I was supposed to do. And I felt no regret. I felt no remorse. But I just knew that, wow, I didn't know this God existed. I didn't know he loved me. So I'm going to start thinking the way that he says, and I'm going to believe this. If you're with me, say, oh, yeah. Because we've attached shame, guilt to repentance. And that's not even biblical. But it came out of the world church view. And I don't mean to offend because some of you are still within that. This came out of the world church view, which now we know is the Catholic. And that's why you still hear the words, the penance and things like that. And it's not bad. It's just their way of working out of that, I believe. Look at this. So, so Swartz person says, J.I. Packer, huge theologian, says, Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. That's, that's true. And as our knowledge grows of these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. Okay, so that's his view. This is John Piper. Repenting means experiencing a change of mind. Here's where we get it. And not see it, that now sees God as true and beautiful and worthy of all our praise and all our obedience. So here's what repentance means uh, biblically. It's the word, uh, Mateo, it's a verb. It means to change one's mind or purpose, to change your mind. So when some people ask me, they say, do you think shame comes with repentance? I think shame may be something that drove you to see and go, wow, I need to change my mind on this. But it wasn't ch- shame that led you to the gospel. It was God who led you to the gospel. If you're with me, so yeah. I want us to understand, if we're going to be a church of grace and truth, we've got to understand what grace and truth is. We have shamed people into accepting God for many years. We have guilted people. I would rather you look at something and say, and do what it biblically says, and that is, wow, I didn't know God did this. I didn't know there was one God. I didn't know. That really is the, what Christianity is. I'm, I'm changing my mind. 
Because when I came to know Christ, there was no shame, there was no guilt, there was nothing but joy. Joy was attached to my salvation, not guilt or not shame. I was just happy to know there's a God that loved me out there that I never heard of. And it's things like this that other church would look at me and say, you know, Pat, you better be careful. That's heresy. And what they're telling me is heresy. It's because biblically, guilt, penance, shame is not even close to what the Greek word means. It means to change your mind. So when John was saying, repent for the kingdom is at hand, he was basically saying, hey, you guys better change your mind about what you believe. You better change your mind about what you believe about God. You better change your mind about going to that temple. You better change your mind. It's right. That's what he meant. And so this is what this word really means. This kind of repentance is not about regret or guilt or shame. It implies making a decision to turn around and to face a new direction. I got it back. It says, so here's what I want you to know. Worldly guilt produces a smell of death. I really believe that. It just produces a smell of death. It's the kind of regret that gives a great attention to ourselves. What I did wrong. How bad I am. Why I can't stop. You ever find yourself there? That's a worldly. Listen, it says this kind of regret ultimately produces self-loathing and emptiness because its point of reference always leads back to ourselves. We talk ourselves into something that's not true. And then we blame it on God or we blame it on Satan. And you get Satan's going, I didn't do that. You did it yourself. Look, it says it causes inner turmoil and it rots our heart and our mind. And the stench of regret never leaves. Watch this. Until we change our mind, that's repentance, and confess and accept Christ as our only hope. And so that's what that truly means. Even Paul talked about different types. He says, as it is, I rejoice. He was talking to the Corinthians. He said, not because you were grieved, because he, he, he knew that he had grieved. And he says, not because you're grieved, but because you were grieved into Repenting. He even said, I'm, I'm not happy that you grieved, that you felt bad about it, what I taught you about. I'm happy that it led you to change your mind to repent. You're with me? He said, I'm not happy. Many of us are happy going, they should feel bad. You ever do that? Well, they should feel bad. Well, they got what they had coming. They did it themselves. Yeah, that's not the way God wants us to think. He wants us to go, wow, I'm glad that they changed their mind. He says, so that you suffer no loss. You felt a godly grief. See that? So that you suffer no loss through us. It says this. It says, for godly grief produces a repentance, a change of mind that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas by worldly grief produces death. Does everybody understand the difference now? And some of you have been taught, just like I was as I grew up in, in my, my denomination, that this is, what, this is what repentance is. It's saying you're sorry. Repentance is not saying you're sorry. Repentance is changing your mind. It's changing your mind. It's saying, I'm going to live a different way. I'm going to act a different way. Joy was attached to my repentance. If shame is attached to yours or guilt, that is conviction. That's a different word. That's conviction, and the conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. It says, feeling shame over sin is not the same thing as repentance from sin. Shame and guilt are self-focused. Conviction and repentance are God-focused. With that, yeah, I hope some of you go back and rethink everything. I want you to understand that's grace and truth. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world 
uh, in righteousness were going back. By a man whom he has appointed, of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is him continuing to speak. Now, when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some were mocked, but some mocked, but others said, we'll, we'll, hear, we'll, hear you, we'll hear more about this if you want us to. I'm going along. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysus, a paragite woman, and named Demarius and others with them. So... Here's who we are, and then I'm going to close. We are here to influence our community. We're all influencers. You can be a bad influence, or you can be a good influence. I'm asking you. God's asking you, I believe, not because, but he wants you to be an influence to your community. We're all influencers. I guarantee you go, well, I don't make that big of an influence. Let me follow you around for a couple of days, and I'll show you how you were a bad influence and a good influence. I could follow you around while you're walking through Walmart. I could follow you around while you're driving your car, and I'll show you how we're influencers, right? Here's this. In our community, our community changes all the time. So if you're coming to be a part of us, your community is that. If you're on the soccer field and there's eight people huddled around you because it's February and it's really cold during soccer season, and you try to stay warm so you won't die, that's your community. When I was on a plane flying to Alabama about a month ago, the two people on each side, was my, they were my community. My stewardess was my community. Your community always changes. Your community are your neighbors. Some of you, you don't even know your neighbors yet. My neighbor lives next to me. He doesn't have a weed eater, so I weed eat his yard from time to time because I want to influence my community. Now his son says hello to me. I want, I want, that, I want that family. I want to find out. I want, I'm going to find more. Now I know that he works three jobs. So I'm slowly working. If you're with me, say, oh, yeah. Your community is everywhere. Listen, and we want to touch that community with the grace and truth, grace and truth. When we started the church, it was truth and grace because truth always came first. But most time in the Bible, grace comes first. But they're equally balanced. But I wanted to be as close to what the Bible said, and I believe we offer the grace. Hey, guys, listen, you need to know this. I would say this at 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 a Cornerstone class. I have been asked by God not to marry two people that are unequally yoked. Unequally yoked is that one is a believer in Christ and one is a non-believer in Christ. So what that means is I will marry two lost people. You know why? Because I get six sessions of counseling. And in nine years, every people that I've, I've witnessed to in those six counselings have come to know Christ. Some, some of them sit in this room today. Yeah. I marry lost people. You need to say you're a pastor. And I get calls from other pastors telling me I'm going to get, God's going to get me. I don't know what that means. But, but I'm telling you. Because they can go before a judge who is lost and get nothing, or they can get the gospel from me. That's, that's the church you're joining. That's the church you're a part of. Grace, grace, we need to offer grace. I don't care how many tattoos you have. I don't care how many... How many, how, many, how many churches have kicked you out because of something you've done? We will be safe in here. We will protect the body. But I have grace covering me. How about you? And we'll offer the truth. I'm not, a pra- I'm not afraid to preach against homosexuality when it comes up. And we're doing it. I touch right on it. I'll, tell you, I'll teach about it. I'm not afraid to look at you and say, yes, we do believe in tongues, but we will not do it publicly. Some people go, oh, don't touch that. It's a hot potato. I'm going, give me the hot potato. Let's open it, put some butter in it, and put some, you know what I mean? Let's eat it up and then realize how to deal with the hot potato. I'm not afraid of the hot potato, all right? I'm going long. So this is what I, I wanted you to see. 
Look, it says, and the word became flesh. Remember, John said, and, 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 and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. We will be balanced in our approach. It says, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was the one in whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he went before me. Look, and, from, and far from the fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Look, grace upon grace, grace upon grace. For the law was given through the Moses. That's where we want to live to. That's where we want to go back to. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ.